Well, hey, New City, glad to be with you today as we continue our series in Colossians. I want to begin by sharing with you how, if you're, again, if you're part of New City, this isn't news to you, but when I was in eighth grade, I made the middle school soccer team, which was a big deal for me as someone who's very competitive but not very athletic. It was the pinnacle of my athletic career. But what was interesting is I made the soccer team because they extended the tryouts and I couldn't make it the last day, and so I wasn't there the last day, and I think the coach just kind of forgot about me or felt bad, and so he said, oh, I guess we got to allowed Dylan to make the team. And in, I, when I was in middle school, I don't know if it was like this for you, uh, there was something called fifth quarter that was played before the actual game began. It was five minutes long, and it was for all the players who never got to play during the regular, the regular game were able to play for at least five minutes so that they could do something and maybe feel good about themselves. And so that's what I was on. I was on our fifth quarter team. And a few games into the season, I would play defense. One of our other defenders broke his arm, so he had to stop playing. And so the second string guy got put in there. And a few games later, I guess he wasn't very good. So eventually I got to play. And at the end of the year, I started. And I share that story. What's funny is I went from the last person that probably made the team to one of the starters. But it wasn't because I worked really hard. It's not because like I was doing extra practice and impressed the coach. It just happened because of happenstance and things just kind of going my way that I kind of improved my position on the team, but really not because I did anything. And I share that story because this morning we're looking at this question. How can we develop a strong faith? Like when it comes to our faith in Jesus and following him and our spiritual vitality, is it something that just kind of happens by happenstance? Like you just follow Jesus for a while and your faith just gets stronger? Or is there a role that we have to play in it? I think most of us will say, well, Dylan, the answer is kind of obvious. I mean, there are certainly, if we want to develop a strong faith, there's something we have to do about it. And yet, if we're being honest, I think a great question is, if you've been following Jesus for some time, do you feel like your faith is stronger and you're closer to Jesus now than you were a few years ago? And if not, the question is, what do we do about that? How can we develop a stronger faith? And that's what Paul is going to talk about this morning. So we're in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 17. To give you some context really quick, again, Paul is in prison in Rome, writing this letter to the church in Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, basically to encourage them to grow into their faith, encouraging them in spiritual vitality. And this theme that Jesus is above everything, that he is over everything, that he is king, that he is Lord, is encouraging and reminding us the gospel of who Christ is. Now, most of the letter up until this point is that fact that Jesus saves us, that Jesus gives us grace, that he is over everything. And then last week we talked about sin, that because God saves us, uh, he wants good, good for us, he wants better for us. And so he's inviting us to put sin to death before sin destroys us. And so we talked about things like a sexual immorality, slander, and greed, and how if we are in Christ, we can overcome these things because of the status that God has given us. And it is in that vein that Paul continues. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, he says this, Therefore, again, therefore, since God has saved us and we are in him, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Here, his instructions are changing from negative to positive. Again, last week it was don't do these certain things because they do not promote uh, love and unity and honoring God. And, and so don't do these things and instead do these things that we're talking about, ca- compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, right? He's saying as God's chosen people, as a set apart people, and that's what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart. We take off our old clothes, our sinful nature, our selfishness, and our pride, 
and we put on our new clothes for our new position. Since we are in Christ, we get to clothe ourselves, if you will, in what God has for us. Now, I think I'm in the minority in this, uh, in this position, but I'm somebody who I don't really care what clothes feel like. Like, I'll wear whatever. So, for example, some people, when they get home from work, they'll change their work clothes, uh, change out of their work clothes and put more comfortable clothes on. And for me, I'm like, everything kind of feels the same. Like, I do not care. Like, so, for example, you know, years ago when I worked at Verizon, I would have to wear dress shoes and dress pants and, you know, like a, a button-up shirt uh, with, like, the Verizon logo on it. And I would get home from work, and I would just leave it on. And Christina was like, you don't have to wear that. But I'm like, you know, I don't really care. And then so sometimes, like, we would go to dinner after work and I would just leave it on and it didn't change and people sometimes would come up and ask me questions about their phone or whatever because they knew I worked for Verizon and they had Verizon and I share that because Christina would look at me and she said you know you don't have to wear that and I think what Paul is saying here is that we don't actually have to be enslaved to sin because God has given us a new identity so again verse 12 this identity what he wants us to do is this he says put on compassion kindness humility gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Again, he's, he's reminding and encouraging us to take on the attitude of Christ, right? Because you are in him, not to earn his favor or grace, but because you have already received his favor and grace, he's saying bear with each other. And bear with each other can be thought of like this, like restraining your natural reaction towards difficult people, right? Restraining your natural reaction towards difficult people and forgiving any grievances you have with each other. What's interesting is he's not saying that following Jesus is going to result in us living in some utopia here and now, right? Following Jesus does not mean we will not hurt each other. It does not mean that we won't, we won't say, uh, say, say unkind things about one another. It does not mean we will never let each other down. It says in spite of those things or because those things will happen, I'm encouraging you to love and give compassion and grace through those things that we would bear with one another in the same way that Christ has forgiven us we should then go and forgive others. Now, this sounds really good, right? We should, we should be a people that forgive others right, right, just like Christ has forgiven us. But I, I want us to make this personal. I don't want us to make, a, make this theoretical like that sounds good. So let me just pause real quick and say this. Who do you need to forgive? Right? If he's saying here that just as Christ has forgiven us, we are also to forgive one another, who do you need to forgive? Right? If you've been, you know, is there a family member that has been driving you crazy because you've been spending a lot of time with each other? Is there a coworker who has said something recently that is, uh, uh, has rubbed you the wrong way? Uh, if we're being super honest, you know, with COVID 19 and how many of us kind of differ on how we should respond, should we see people, should we not, should we go to work, should we stay at home, right? There might be posts or things that you have said uh, or things that you have read that have hurt you, right? Is there somebody that you need to forgive? the way Christ has forgiven you. Being a person, a follower of Jesus and being the people of God does not mean we will not hurt one another, but what it does mean is that we should extend grace and forgiveness even when it's difficult. I love what N.T. Wright, who is a commentator and biblical scholar on this passage, he gives two reasons, two reasons in particular as to why we should forgive one another. He says this. He says, first, it is utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven to refuse to share that blessing with another. Second, it is highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one 
whom Christ himself has already forgiven. So if you have been forgiven by God, who are we then to not extend that grace to others? Oh, and by the way, the person that you and I may not want to forgive um, is, already, is already able to receive the forgiveness of Christ if they so desire and seek it. That we have to be a people in response to what Christ has done that are forgiving one another. Now, this does not mean it's not going to be hard, right? Sometimes people deeply wound us, right? Some of you have been deeply wounded, whether in the past or maybe recently. And this doesn't mean that we wake up the next day and say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to forgive you. But what it does mean is that even though it hurts, even though it's painful, that we would ask God to soften our heart and allow us to move towards the direction of forgiveness, even if it's hard. Because God has forgiven you, and he is willing and able to extend forgiveness to others. Oh, and, and by the way, we also, although sometimes we don't want to think, it, think like it this way, you and I have also deeply wounded and hurt other people, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And God is giving us grace, and so we should give grace to others. In other words, here's the point that Paul is getting at, that following Jesus is a response, not an obligation. Following Jesus is a response, not an obligation. So we don't give each other compassion and kindness and patience and forgiveness uh, in order for God to love us more or to get something from God. But we do these things in response to what Christ has done for us, that he has been uh, gracious with us, that he has forgiven us, that he has been kind to us, that he has been gentle to us. And so in response to that, if we receive the grace and mercy of God, we then do it to others. Again, uh, if you're around New City, you, you, you know this, that when I was in college, I was a music major. And I always think of this, of this example, how when I was a music major, I didn't know what to do. So I was doing jazz piano stuff and it was fine. I didn't really know what to do with my life. I didn't think I was going to like do music, but that's what I started to do in college. And so I would do the bare minimum. Like playing music was fun for me, but it wasn't something that I wanted to give my life to. It wasn't something that like I was super, super passionate about. And so I did the bare minimum. I practiced like the least amount that I could to get away with it. I listened to like the least amount of music things that I had to listen to to kind of get away with it. And then on the contrary, I had other friends that were music majors who would say things like, you know, last night I slept in, the, in the, one of the practice rooms, you know, as I was practicing and I had, you know, a lot of things to work on. And I'm thinking, why in the world would you want to do that? Like who would want to sleep in a practice room just so you can practice longer? But in the same vein, they would probably think if I said this out loud, which of course I didn't, they would probably think, why wouldn't you? You see, for them, it was a response because they were passionate about music and they wanted to pursue it as a vocation. They were like, what else would I do? Right? For me, I viewed uh, my music major before I switched as an obligation. They viewed it as a response, right? And if we do something out of obligation, it will not last very long. And so we, we honor one another. We are kind to one another. We are forgiving to one another, not to earn something from God or because it's the right thing to do, we do it because we are reminded of the grace and mercy that God has shown us. And so with that, Paul continues, verse 14, he says this. He says, Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What he's saying is that love is what makes all these things 
possible. Bond here is probably a metaphorical image, uh, meaning like back then they they would wear an outer garment that would bond uh, everything else that they were wearing together. They would hold everything else together. What he's saying is that love binds believers together. And so we can pursue these other virtues that we've been talking about here without becoming uh, disoriented or without them being unattainable over the long haul, right? The reason that we want to forgive and be patient and be kind and be gentle and all of these things is because we love people. We're not trying to be forgiving just for forgiving sake or be patient just for check the box of patience that we, we react this way towards people because we genuinely Love them. Love is what binds us together and what motivates us to treat others the way that Christ has treated us. And here is, the, here is what happens when we do that. When we pursue love and all of, the, all of the things that come from that, here's what happens, verse 15. He says, And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called, that if you're in Christ, you were called to this in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Right? What he's saying is that when love has its full effect on a community, we experience peace. Now, he's not talking about the, the inward peace that comes with following Jesus. Right? Yes, that's the thing, and that's true, and he brings us peace, but that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is peace that characterizes a community, a church, a family, a friend group, right? Peace that characterizes a community that pursues love. Right? This is what happens when we genuinely love one another. But to be fair, this is not this utopian image where no one ever hurts each other or no one ever does anything wrong. Love isn't easy. This means that we love each other in spite of our voting preference differences. Like we can vote for different candidates and for different things and have different uh, political ideologies and still love one another. That'll take work, but it is possible. Uh, for, for, for back then, for example, what they ate was a big deal. You had a lot of Jewish believers who were trying to still follow the, the kosher dietary laws, and you had other people who weren't, and so that was a big problem for them. And so Paul often writes about whatever, whatever you eat, still love, have your convictions, but still love one another because Christ is more important than those things. Again, if we want to make it real with what we're dealing with right now, the COVID-19 coronavirus and how we're responding, especially as things in North Carolina begin to open up in the coming weeks, in the coming months, like we should be okay with having differing opinions about what that should look like. We can have the conviction about what we want to do or or about what our family would do, but still be loving and gracious and kind to those who disagree. This is not easy. It takes work. And if we want to be a part of a community that loves one another, we have to participate in that work. We have to participate in giving one another grace and forgiveness, right? And what this means, you could think of it maybe uh, this way. Here's what this means. That peace is not the absence of differing opinions. It is loving one another in spite of them. Peace is not the absence of differing opinions. We are human. We have different uh, life stories. We have different beliefs. We have different things that have happened to us that shapes what we believe and shapes what we do. Peace is not the absence, therefore, of differing opinions. It is loving one another in spite of them, right? It's okay that we're different, but we're still going to pursue love and grace in spite of them. Now, here's what's interesting. You may not know this, but Jesus actually modeled this with his disciples. He modeled this with his disciples and it's actually quite fascinating. Let me read for you uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses one through four. This is kind of 
I don't know, for lack of a better word, Jesus' official summoning of his 12 disciples. And here's what it says in Matthew chapter 10. It says, summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive out and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, what's interesting here is that in this list, you have only two disciples that are given descriptions based on what they do. So you have some descriptors based on they were family or some where they were from, but only two of them were given descriptors about what they do. You have Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot are given descriptors, uh, descriptors about what they do, and I don't think this was just a random coincidence. Here's what's happening here, and this is why this would have been very significant, especially for the original audience. Right, Matthew was a tax collector. Really briefly, this meant that he was he was a Jew. He was a Jewish. He was a, he was a Jew by ethnicity and by family ties. And he grew up and became a, a tax collector for the Roman government. And tax collectors were despised not just because they often would take uh, more money than they had to, so that they could profit off those around them, but because they supported the Roman government. And if you were not a Roman citizen, and for many Jews uh, they weren't, you would have been. You would either either personally or known someone close to you who was probably beaten, killed, or jailed. The Roman Empire was extremely oppressive so that they could control, uh, contain order and keep their rule. And so what was happening, a tax collector was somebody who was essentially betrayed all of their family and friends, stole from them to ha- make sure that the Roman government can continue to oppress them. They were in that time lumped with prostitutes and tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst. So you have on one side, someone who is pro-Roman government and will do whatever he has to do to keep them in power. And then on the other side, you have Simon the Zealot, a zealot, a first century Jew Jewish zealot was somebody who wasn't just like anti-Roman government, but was actively pursuing and and wanted um, 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 violence and fighting back and overthrowing the Roman Empire, right? They wanted to instill violence and anger and hatred to become a free nation void of the Roman Empire. They were the complete opposite, which means they likely hated one another. Right? They likely hated one another. In other words, if we were to do it in modern terms, here's probably what their relationship would have or would not have looked like. Uh, they would not have been friends on Facebook. Right? They would have hit that unfollow button or that unfriend button or probably never would have been friends in the first place. Uh, they would have no relationships with anybody in the other camp. Right, Simon, as a zealot, would not know anybody who was a tax collector or pro-Roman government. And Matthew, as a tax collector, would not have any relationships with anybody who was a zealot. Right? And so what would happen is they would likely use terms like those people when describing one another, because that is what we do when we describe people we have no relationship with. So, so they would have used things like those people because they would have no relationship with them, right? Uh, they would have lived in different neighborhoods. If this was a modern example, uh, their children would have gone to different schools. They would have no contact whatsoever other than online trolls yelling back and forth at one another. And yet you have two people that could not be more politically different, ideologically different. And yet what we see is that they found something that was greater than their political differences that bound them together, 
right? They still believed in what they believed in politically, but it didn't identify them. That wasn't their identity anymore. And it would be very logical and extremely likely to assume that they probably had some heated arguments about these things as followers of Jesus and spending so much time together. And yet, it wasn't their identity because they found something greater. It's kind of like most of us can remember 9-11 and how in the months after 9-11, our country really bounded together, right? It didn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat or any number of things. We were here to support each other and love one another, but that only lasted so long, right? There, there are things that happen in our life that often bring us together, but then as life takes its course, we then eventually end up back in our own camps. What we see happening here, the difference with Simon and Matthew is that this was not just a one-time thing. It was the rest of their life. The rest of their life was built around this person and work of Jesus and how that was greater than their political differences. And the point we see there is this, that peace is possible when Christ is present, right? Peace is possible when Christ is present, right? Without Christ, these people would have been at each other's neck all the time, and yet they found something that could, could bind them together. Their differences didn't go away. Their disagreements didn't go away, but they forgave each other. They loved one another. They cared for one another because of what Christ was accomplishing and who he was. Peace is possible where Christ is present. It reminds me about when I was a kid. My dad did not travel for work often, maybe once a year. He would go out of town, and every time that would happen, I would be nervous at night that someone was going to break into our house, right? I always got nervous. Now, the funny thing is, I grew up in Cary, North Carolina, which is like one of the safest places you could probably live in the world. Uh, um, nobody ever broke into anybody's house in Cary, North Carolina. In fact, I didn't learn to lock my front door until I got to college uh, because when I was home and I would go outside, I left it open, all the t- unlocked all the time because nobody's going to break into your house in Cary. Like nothing happens in Cary. Until I got to college, my roommate was like, dude, why don't you lock the door? People can actually like come into our dorm room and steal things. Like that's actually a thing, right? But when, so when my dad was out of town, even though nothing was going to happen, I was still somewhat fearful and anxious. And it's the same thing with Christ. If we want to experience peace, we've got to be allowed Jesus to impact our lives and impact our community and impact our church. Peace is possible, even though it takes work, when Christ is present. And this is the gospel. Right? This is the gospel that Jesus is over everything, that he is Lord over everything, that he is in control over everything, and so that in him, there is nothing greater. In him, we actually can find something that binds us together. And the gospel is what Christ has done for us. It is not what we do for him. That Christ has given us grace and forgiveness in the person and work in Jesus, and that anybody, no matter who you are, can receive that grace and mercy of God. And then in response... We can follow Jesus, repent of our sin, and allow him and his spirit to change our life. Again, at New City Church, we say it this way often, that because of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. And just think about how peaceful a life that is, that you don't have to improve your, improve yourself to anybody. You don't, have to impress, you don't have to impress anyone, that you and I can live gracefully and humbly, and we don't have to pay each other back. Uh, we don't have to try to uh, one-up one another because we have nothing to prove and we have no one to impress. Peace is possible where Christ is present. And with that, here's what Paul says next in verses 16 and 17, the last two verses that we'll read this morning. He says this, He says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you 
and all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Right? Singing to God with gratitude in your heart. He said, in, order, in other words, the way for us to get to this place where we can love one another and where we are defined as a people of peace is by dwelling with Christ. Right? We need to dwell with Christ and allow him to change our lives. And how do we dwell with him? He gives some examples here. He talks about studying scripture or singing songs of praise and worship, right? Doing things that help, that allow uh, you and I to commune with Christ. Things like fasting, things like uh, community, things like uh, being intentional. And like he said last week, fighting and proactively planning to fight against sin, doing things that allow us to commune with him and letting Christ stir our affections. And when he does that, and when we are reminded of his goodness and his grace, we are much more likely to then go extend it to others. And what's interesting about this coronavirus pandemic, one of the things that I have been praying for through this difficult time, because let's just be honest, it's hard. Many of us might be dealing with uh, maybe some depression, some low-level anxiety, like we're not seeing one another. It's just hard. We're not, I mean, obviously we're doing it for the virus's sake, but we're not meant to be a people that live isolated. And we've been at this for about two months now. And so many of us are feeling some really negative impacts of this. And so we're in a hard spot. And so dwelling with Christ even more, maybe is more important now than it has been in quite some time. And one of the prayers that I have for our church, and I Honestly, I'm not sure if I should say this or not, but it's true. And so maybe if you are, want to join me in praying this prayer, I would love, to do, I would love you to do that with, with me. But one of my prayers through this difficult time as being kind of isolated and not being able to see one another, not being able to gather as a church in any way at this moment, is that we would have a solid core of people coming out of this that are going to say, you know what, I want to be a part of a church where the preaching is good. Yes, that's important. I want to be a part of a church where the worship is good. And I, and I love seeing my friends and all that stuff is great. But more than anything, I want to love God and I want to love people. And I'll be on mission for Jesus. Because here's just the reality of what we're living through right now. Because everything's online, we're going to lose some people. Like if I can just speak to those of you that call New City Church home right now, we're going to lose some people. Some people are disconnecting because they're getting into a new rhythm and we don't have anything to offer and we can't gather together. So we're going to lose some people. That's just the reality of what's happening. At the same time, we're going to gain some people that are finding us online for the first time. I've actually received emails from people that have said, hey, we love what you guys are doing. We can't wait to connect with you. We've been watching your stuff uh, when things open up again. So we're going to lose some people. We're going to gain some people. But what I want more than anything else is to have a solid core of people in the months ahead when we can come back together. And I don't have a number on it. Could be 10, could be 50, could be 75. I have no idea that say, you know what? I want to love God. I want to love people. And I want to be on mission for Jesus so that as many people as possible can see Jesus, experience Jesus, know Jesus, and grow in a relationship with him. I'm going to ask God to allow him to use me in the pockets of influences, influence and in my family and my workplace and my friend group and where I go to school, that he would just allow me to be used by him. My prayer is that we would have a solid core of people out of this suffering that have suffered well and say, God, I am here. How can we be a community that loves one another, that extends grace and peace to one another? That is one of my prayers. And I would love just personally for you to join me in that, that we would be a people of peace, just like Paul is saying. And suffering often is the road to get there, that we learn that we have nothing else and that no one else can give us the hope that Christ can. That is how we get there. In verse 
verse 17, he ends by saying this. And he says, whatever you do, and word or indeed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And here's what this means. That, that anytime you do something in somebody's name, it means two things. It means you represent them, and it means you are empowered by them to do so. So let's say you have a job and you're maybe negotiating a sale deal or a new contract with a client, right? In that case, you are both representing your company and have you, you have been empowered by your company to make decisions on behalf of your company. What Paul is saying here is that you and I are, he's encouraging us to live in a way that both represents who Christ is and we are empowered by Christ to do that. And how we do that is by remembering that it is Christ and God's spirit, the Holy Spirit that empowers us to be a people of love, compassion, forgiveness, grace, humility, gentleness, and peace. And so we must dwell with him. We have to dwell with him if we want to experience what it means to be followers of Jesus and the benefits and the goodness that Christ offers. And so just real quick, let me ask, what is holding you back from dwelling with him? Right? What things in your life are holding you back from dwelling with him? If you would say, uh, yes, you're a follower of Jesus and you love Jesus, but you don't feel that you have grown spiritually or that you are any closer to Jesus now than you were three or four years ago, the question is why? And what do you and I need to do to encourage us to take steps so that we can dwell with Christ and experience some of these benefits? Because here's what I want to do. Here's the last thing I'll read. I want to read to us Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 20, where Paul is writing who Christ is. This is the person, this is the God that he's inviting us to dwell with to change our life. Here is who Christ is. Verse 15, it says this. Uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The invitation is for us to dwell with King Jesus, who is over all things and who can empower us to give love, grace, forgiveness, and peace to other people in the same way that he has given it to us. And to that end, here is how I want to close. Here's the main idea of what this actually looks like to strengthen our faith. Here's what I would say. That the strength of your faith is your decision. The strength of your faith is your decision. The strength of my faith is my decision. Here is the reality, that we are saved by God, that we do not save ourselves. We do not do anything to earn our salvation. It is a free gift that God bestows upon us to anyone who would trust, follow, repent, and follow him. It is not, has nothing to do with us and has everything to do with him. But if we are saved, once we are saved, if we want to grow closer to God, that's on us. 
That is on us. We have a role to play if we want to experience Jesus more closely, if we want to experience Jesus more vibrantly, if we want the Spirit of God to empower us in our lives to do things that are really hard to do on our own effort. It is really hard to be gracious to people that make you mad. It is really hard to forgive people that have hurt you, right? It is really hard not to respond to somebody who is falsely accusing you in some negative way. But we can do that through the power of Christ and his and, and his spirit, right? The strength of your faith is your decision. And think of it like this. Think of it, for, if you will, with me, of some of the people in your life, maybe the spiritual giants, the people in your life that you look at them and you say, man, they love Jesus. They are clearly marked by Jesus and they have a vibrant faith. I bet you probably know this as well, that they have spiritual, distance, uh, uh, spiritual disciplines in their life that they have cultivated over many years that have stirred their affections for Christ, right? They have spent time with God. They have forgiven one another. They might have fasted for a while. They might have prayed. They might have done things where at the moment, they didn't feel like doing it. But over time, through these disciplines, God strengthened their faith because they took proactive steps to put themselves in a position to be used by God. And what I want to know this morning is that we are completely saved by Jesus and nothing that we can do. But if we want to grow closer to him, we have a role to play in that. The strength of your faith, the strength of my faith, the strength of the faith of people that we know around us that are followers of Jesus is our decision. Whether or not we actually want to do it. And the invitation is to come grow closer to Jesus, not out of obligation, but in response. The strength of your faith is your decision. And so to that end, I want to take a minute and pray. And then we'll have the band sing one more song over us as we dwell on who Christ is and what he has done. Would you pray with me?